Well, I'm going to start a little bit differently uh, today, and actually we're just going to dive right into the Scriptures. So I'd invite you to take out the Bibles that are behind the pews or your own, uh, and we're going to look at Acts chapter 23, verses 12 to... Um, to 35. And just real quick, why I'm doing that is um, if this is your first time here or, or have been here for a little bit, we're in the, we're in the series of, of, of Acts. We're going through the book of Acts. I've been in, been in this book for quite some time. Probably feels like forever. But uh, we're tracking through and, and we're towards the end now where, where the Apostle Paul has been brought into to Jerusalem and, and brought before a, a court of sorts and really on trial on trial for his life, but on trial to defend the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ as to why he has taken on the mission that he has taken on, why he is preaching to Gentiles, people from other, nature, other nations, about who Jesus is and leading them into this new way that is a little bit counter than the ways uh, that his Jewish counterparts are used to. And so he's on trial. And, um, and last week, we kind of went through a a rather serious part of the trial, and, and it ended with Paul being taken away and now back in the barracks again in, in the Roman headquarters, the tribune's house or whatever, and Christ comes to him, to Paul, and says, okay, great, now you're going to go to Rome. You know, I still have more for you to do, basically. I think the exact words were, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, now you must testify to me in Rome. And so I want to start with the scriptures right away to get us back into this trial because it's a heightened sense of danger now. There's a heightened sense of urgency. Things are starting to roll here a little bit. And, uh, and so I just, we don't need to dance around. Let's get into it, okay? Acts chapter 23, verses 12 and following. So now it's the next day. And the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 of them who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priest and elders and said, we have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now, therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune, that's the Rome guy, to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So real quick, it's interesting here that Luke mentions that, that Paul, or that Paul, excuse me, that the Jews appeal to the council of elders and, uh, and chief priests. It is thought that most of them might be the Sadducees who, who were totally against Paul in terms of Paul saying that, in the last week, saying that I'm here to testify to the resurrection. If you remember, the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. The Pharisees, who also make up the full council, they're with Paul on that. They do believe in the resurrection. They just can't make the leap to Jesus. It's just something that's blocking them there. And so these 40 folks kind of go after the ones that are against Paul first, but make no mistake, the rest of the council, you'll see, join in on that. And they join with this conspiracy to end Paul's life. Now, verse 16, the son of Paul's sister, his nephew, uh, learns, hears of this ambush. And so he goes and enters the barracks and tells Paul. Paul calls one of the centurions over and says, take this young man to the tribune for he has something to tell him. So he took him in and brought him into the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you. He's got something to say. The tribune took him by the hand and going outside, aside to him, talk to talk to him privately, says, what is it that you have to tell me? 
And he said, well, the nephew said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as if they are going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But don't be persuaded by this. Don't be persuaded by them for more than 40 of them are lying in ambush for him and have bound themselves by oath to neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they're ready and waiting for your consent to, to do this. So the tribune dismisses the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This also kind of highlights the treatment that Paul is getting. Now, understand that Paul's still kind of in captivity here, but he is being treated well. He's allowing, visitors are allowed in, and he's there, quote unquote, for his safety, and does have some sort of authority to be able to call a centurion over, to have an audience with the tribune, and so on and so forth. So now moving on, verse 23. Then the tribune called two of the centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts, a horse, for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And then the tribune wrote this letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias, that's his name, to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man has been seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. This is a little bit comic relief because we know the tribune did no such thing. The tribune was getting ready to flog Paul and, and have him pretty much beaten to death, but now he's kind of covering his tracks here. There's another acronym for it, but I can't say it in church. Okay, so verse 28, and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against him, I, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So everyone's going to, up to Caesarea. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, they take Paul and they bring him by night to uh, Antipatris. And on the next day, they return to the barracks, letting the horsemen go the rest of the way. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. And on reading the letter, the centurion, um, whoever it was, the, I guess the governor, asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicilia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium, kind of Herod's house area there. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. So here we are. Visceral reactions again. Just things are happening. Forty people are going to bind themselves by oath not to eat or drink so as long as Paul dies. Last week I talked about these reactions, but I talked about it in a way that when we go and share the love of Christ with others, sometimes with our closest friends even or family, probably happens more oftentimes than not with people who know us, but just in general there are times where people don't want anything to do with the good news. They don't want to hear it from you. They think you think they're better than them. They just, they just rather would stay in the darkness. And Jesus kind of teaches about that saying people like to be in the darkness. Evil likes to be in the darkness because when the light shines, it shines on the dumb stuff that you're doing. And as, what is it, Jack Nichols says in the movie, we can't handle the truth, right? And that's kind of what's going on. They can't handle that. They don't want it. And they have these reactions, these resentments towards the gospel, just like these Jewish folks are doing. Now, this is a highlight of a core sinful issue for all of us, not just these 40 guys that have bound themselves. The core sinful issue here is that we fight as sinful people pride over our humility, and we fight the lordship over things versus perfect submission. 
And it's easy for us to walk away from this story and think shame on the evil ones, shame on those who don't receive the truth, and shame on these dumb Jewish folks and their ongoing resistance. But I think that's an interpretive mistake for us. I would I caution us on that. This would only have us looking at part of the story and not what the full mantle of Scripture might be teaching us about this interaction between Paul's defense, how he's witnessing to who Jesus is, and of course the reactions that he's receiving. Only viewing it through the lens of, of us being a victim, Christianity being a victim, is not seeing the whole story. Could God's word, my friends, this story of these people, could it be teaching us a deeper truth? Could it be teaching us a greater warning and a lesson that would make us similar to the Jews in the story and the Romans in the story versus being the holy chosen ones of God? Our passage highlights the importance of power. Don't miss that. Right now, you have the people in power are the Jews and the Romans. These Jewish folks, what is their power? They are ceding their power, first and foremost, that they are the chosen people of God and that they have received the law. And they are standing on the fact that following the law is what makes you right with God. And they, have, uh, they are enjoying a sense of kind of power that the Romans are allowing them to have their own councils, their own religious laws, and to enact those laws and all the things. And so they've kind of got some, some podiums here for themselves. The other power is the Romans, right? And the Romans' power is what? Military and, and, and political. They kind of, they're, they're ruling the show here. When anyone's in power, like the Jews and the Romans, they don't want to cede it. And they will do everything that they can to hold on to it. And that's not just for Jews and Romans. That's for all of us. Have any of you ever played King of the Hill in Playground, right? You know, and you'll do anything to stay on the hill. Just kick little kids as they're going off. I mean, I may have done that as a youth minister, but I don't know. But you do everything that you can to maintain and hold on to that power because at the core of our sinfulness, that's what we want. Go back to Adam and Eve, right? Go back to the beginning. How did Adam and Eve fall from grace? I always go back to Adam and Eve to understand how we tick as sinful people. The serpent comes, Satan comes and tempts them with the very words of God and gets them in their minds to begin to make judgments and to begin to make distinctions. And then they see with their own eyes, it says, that the food is good. And then they make the decision to eat from it so that they could be what? Equal with God. That's at the core of all of our sinfulness. We want to be equal or better than God. We want the power. We want the lordship. There is a literal lesson here of what I just read. So I'm going to give you like the good Jesus-y stuff. And then the next lesson, the more implied one, is the stuff that's going to get to our cornflakes this morning. So we'll leave here praising Jesus. Trust. It's okay. But the literal lesson of what I just read, this little passage, it's kind of a transfer passage, literally, because he's going from Jerusalem to Rome. He is saying goodbye to Jerusalem now for good. And now he's heading on to Rome, just as Jesus said. That's the literal lesson, to trust in the word of Christ. Jesus said to Paul, thank you for what, basically, I'm paraphrasing, thank you for what you did in Jerusalem. Now you're going to do the same here in Rome. And nothing that humans can do is going to stop that. These 40 men, their little whatevers that they're trying to do, that ain't going to stop you from getting to Rome. God is saying to Paul, I'm going to get you through this. I'm not going to get you out of it. 
and is pulling him through what's going on, and no scheme of man, no power of hell can pluck Paul from Jesus' hand. That's the literal lesson of what we're seeing here in this transfer passage. Amen? Let's go home and eat lunch, right? No, but I do want to get into, like I said, our cornflakes here. The implied lesson of the story, the challenge, as I said in the beginning, what if God's word is challenging us to see ourselves in the actions of the Jews and not so much Paul? The implied lesson here is how easy it is for anyone, Christian as well, and a place of power to uphold just parts of God's word as platforms and use them as weapons against people. And that's exactly what the Jewish folks are doing. They're taking just a part of their scriptures and they're using it and staking their claim on it and saying that we are going to, to kill Paul in order to maintain just this part of scripture. These lessons from Paul's defense that we have been learning are helping us with our own defense and witness of the gospel. How do we share it? And today we learn the valuable lesson and the importance of leading with love and walking in Christ. Say that with me. Leading with love and walking in Christ. So how does this happen? Well, the first thing, and I've already pretty much alluded to it, if we're going to lead with love, we're going to walk in Christ, we got to recognize what's going to stop us from doing that. Because that's what's happening here with the Jews. They're not recognizing that they are two steps off of what God is calling them and what God has said to be true. They're holding on to the law as the only thing of God's word and negating the prophecies and they're negating Jesus himself. And all three of those things make up the full authority of God's word. The law, the Old Testament, the prophecies that say what Jesus is going to do, that directly say God is going to bring all of the nations together. They're, just, they're not taken into any of that. And then, of course, Jesus, as we know as Christians, is the word made flesh. This is God's word in the flesh walking around. And they've totally discredited him. But who hasn't? Paul. Paul has connected the dots. He has weaved all of these, things to, these three things together to be like, this is how we are to walk and live as good Jewish folks, as God's people. But what's stopping them is their sinfulness. They don't want their power gone. And not only that, they are making distinctions. They are making judgments about the others, about these icky, dirty Gentiles. They, they, they don't want them to be a part of it. If you remember when Paul goes to Jerusalem originally, Jen and I were talking about this, and he talks to James and he says to James, listen, all these awesome things are happening with the Gentiles. They are, they are coming alive to the gospel. There are these communities that have been built. Thanks be to God. And James's reply to Paul is, yeah, but we've got all these Jews here that are doing really good. I mean, totally negates all the good and wonderful things that are happening there. It's easy for us when we're in power to think of ourselves in a superior fashion against others. The Christian church is not innocent of this. I think of the Holocaust, right? And that wasn't the whole church. It's just one expression in one area. But that was centered on some zealous Christian thought, anti-Semitic thought that came from that, thinking that they're doing what, what God wants them to do. 
And even, uh, and uh, I remember in my missionary class, in missions class in seminary, they talked about the Anabaptist and that the, the ruling kind of denomination thought of the time actively persecuted the Anabaptists, put them in cages and tortured them. When you're in power, it's so easy to slip into these areas where you just take little bits and pieces of Scripture and make it that's what has to be and, and that's how we need to, to follow and lead. But what we do to people in exchange is so horrific. And so these 40 people, for Paul, they are binding themselves by oath to kill him. They would rather... Now, this is, this is the ironic thing. They would rather not be allowed in the temple because they're breaking the law to kill him. They're okay with that so long as Paul dies. That's how much the hatred is and the resistance that they have that's going on with inside them. And it was ironic to me because last week we talked about how Paul would rather go to hell if it meant that his Jewish brothers and sisters would come alive to the gospel. Isn't that a weird kind of twist of events there? Instead of going back to the full measure of God's word, these, these Jewish folks, instead of celebrating God's word coming alive in Gentiles, they would rather see Paul dead. And they get the Sanhedrin, the council, to join with them. Isn't that also weird? Forty people can turn the heads of the leadership to follow along on this conspiracy, and they're okay with it so long as the 40 people carry it out, and they can be squeaky clean. I often say to our elders, listen, we don't vote the will of the people. Our elders are in place to discern the will of God because as soon as we take on the crowd and their desires, Jesus always ends up crucified. It always happens that way. The same crowd who raised him up are yelling crucify some six days later, right? And so that's what happens with them and they, and they do that and they make this vow, ultimately giving up access to the temple. My friends, hate is a power that rips us apart from standing and walking with God. Have we ever been guilty of that ourselves, of treating others with discontent and with judgment because they didn't fit in with our platform or with the piece of Scripture we may be holding up? Have we ever treated others differently because of their lifestyles or their choices or their antagonism towards God instead of seeing them as real people? See, it's in our sinful nature to make those distinctions. Remember, Adam and Eve saw with their own eyes, but we mustn't forget our spirit nature that Paul teaches us about back in Romans, that when we receive faith in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit that redeems and recalibrates our sinful nature, what our sinful nature tries to distort, and it empowers us to walk and think and act like Jesus Christ. If we want to lead with love in our witness and we want to walk in the ways of Christ, we need to be cognizant of how quickly it is for us to get off the path, to think of ourselves a little bit better than others and to look down from our raised with Christ status at people who aren't there with us. It's possible. It can happen. So how then do we walk in Christ? How do we walk in Christ? And that is the answer, to lead with love. We must stand on the full measure of God's word. We cannot elevate parts of scripture and then make it a platform and a weapon against others. We need to look at the whole thing. And then what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do in scriptures? If we're gonna use the whole thing and walk like Jesus, we gotta see how he reacted. Jesus went and actively sought out lost people. 
He actively sought out people who were sick. He actively sought out people who were downtrodden. And he made good use of all of his time in order to do that. He didn't mess around with the distinctions. He didn't mess around with, oh, it's a Samaritan woman, I shouldn't go there. He didn't mess around with that. Was he aware of them? Absolutely, because he's the Lord. Is he aware of the sins that they struggle with? Absolutely, because he is the Lord. But how does he interact with them? How does Jesus interact with those people as a model for us? Well, his heart broke for the broken. He actively listened to their story. He listened to their struggles. He listened to their wonky theology. Remember the rich young ruler who said, I did everything? And Jesus is like, yeah, sure, and, and kind of gives him another lesson. But he listened to them, gives them a chance. I would say this, he, Jesus saw the person. And that's the challenge for us all. These Jews aren't seeing Paul as a person. They're not seeing him as their fellow brother in arms. They're seeing him as someone who is impacting their high superiority stance. And he needs to be quiet and be put out. But this is not the ways of Christ. Christ listens to us. He hears our struggles and then offers the better way out of genuine love for them. Listen to the words that Jesus has said to people who have received the better way. Rise, be healed, receive sight. Neither do I condemn you. Never thirst again. These are powerful words that heal and don't condemn. They are powerful words that, that draw people in, imperfections and all, and offer them the better way that's found in him. See, that's what the Jews are missing with their holding up the law. See, they think, and this is review, they think that they have to follow the law in order to be made right with God. And any breaking of that law, there's some cleansing things that they have to do in order to stay right. And so that's why they are upset. These Gentiles aren't following it. They won't be clean. They, 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 and get, them, get rid of them. And why would we even entertain that? But as I said, Paul has connected the dots with the whole authority of Scripture. And he sees that what Jesus did was he was the perfect sent one, the perfect human to obey that law perfectly. And that those of us who have faith in him, all that he receives from that obedience, the reward of being with the Father is now given to us. Our being right with God is not on our actions to follow the law. Our being right with God is walking with Christ. That's what Paul is connected and what they're, what they're not. They're not putting that together. They're not seeing Paul as a soul, as a person. They're seeing him as noise that needs to be silent. Christ came first to this world to love us. Judgment condemnation for our sins, that'll happen. But right now, he comes to love and save us and sends us all out to do the same. Doesn't mean that we don't call out sin for what sin is. It doesn't mean that we, that we bless sinful actions. It doesn't mean any of that. But what it does mean is that we lead with love just like he did and with grace and trust in the Holy Spirit to do the convicting work in somebody. It's not gonna happen by a picket sign it's not going to happen by a, a, a vow to kill somebody. That's never going to change someone's heart, right? 
What changes the heart is leading with his love. May we in our bold and courageous witness, I say that, I've been saying that almost every week through Acts, be bold and courageous. May we never forget that we are seeking and witnessing to people, to souls who are just as imperfect as we are and just as in need of the Savior as we are. They are created ones. They have hearts, and that's what we are witnessing too. Trusting in the Holy Spirit to take it the rest of the way. To live the gospel in living color means to be empowered and to be effective and energized by his abundant and saving love. Being bold in our witness, all boldness means is to overcome the hindrances without hesitation. To be courageous, all that means is to proceed without fear and with the full confidence of the power of the Holy Spirit. Bold and courageous does not mean telling someone that they're not welcome because they can't get right with God. Being bold and courageous means to lead with love and walk in the ways of Christ, trusting that he's with us and empowering our words and actions to become effective in their hearts. I think this is why Paul says this in, in Colossians 4, 5 through 6. I'm going to put it up there. I, I, I Googled because I was trying to keep, whenever you're dealing with high theological stuff, it's, it, you got to keep your mind like together, right? Because you can kind of go off on these little rabbit trails. But I, I wanted to come here and make sure I was speaking correctly. Because sometimes you go through the Pauline epistles and you see all of his rules of how we're supposed to treat each other. And quite honestly, those rules are really for within the community. How we as Christians are supposed to behave towards one another. And I think we can take that and be like, yes, also to the outside world. But scripture also talks about fleeing from sin, not being partners with wickedness and things of that nature. So I was like, okay, well, where, what is God, what is Christ really calling us to do with folks who are non-believers? And I forgot about this passage, Colossians. And it came up and I'm like, yes, thank you, God, through Google. Uh, the Colossians is here. Colossians 4, 5 through 6. This is Paul telling this church how to deal with outsiders, non-believers. He tells them to walk in wisdom. That means walk in Christ. Paul uses that terminology often, to walk in the ways of Christ. It's actually steeped in Jewish theology. This idea of walking really means to keep the law. Walk in wisdom, he says, toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. He says, use it all. Use all of this appointed time. Let your speech always be gracious. Lead with love. Seasoned with salt truth of the gospel, so that they taste and see how great Christ is, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Because each person's got a different struggle. Each person has a different beef with God. Each person has a different question that they may need to answer. You just trust that you speak from your heart the truth that you know to be true, that Christ came to save the lost and love the world, and that means them too, no matter what they may be struggling with. My friends, lead with love, walk in Christ. Can we have that be our bold and courageous witness? It's hard, I know, because we see the world as wicked as it is, and it's easy to point it out, and it's easy to say, Ugh, no, and, and be gone. But let us not forget this is a person who needs to hear the love of Christ. And that's what's going to empower a bold and courageous witness as a church loving people to love the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, I thank you.
this message and this sign of hope and a challenge for us. Oh my goodness, Lord, we know how easy it is for us to slip into the way of these Jewish uh, 40 guys, the Pharisees, the rulers, to slip in and think that we're doing right, think that we're, that we're following you, but only following just a part of, of your word. Lord, challenge us to see the full authority of your scripture and what you have called us to do as faithful followers in Christ, to walk in his ways, to live out the way he lived out with others, trusting in the Holy Spirit to do the hard work to bring them in to the family of Jesus. Oh, Lord, may we never forget that. May we never get too big for our britches and to love others the way you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Oh, what an amazing grace that we know found in Jesus Christ that saved dirty, rotten skunks, wretches like you and me. We're no better than anyone else, but we do know the better way. Better way found in Jesus Christ. So may we witness boldly and with courage to love others in the way that he has loved us, to see them as people who need to hear the gospel in this amazing grace, to have their eyes opened up to see the true Lord and how sweet that would be for them and us to have them with us when we go to heaven at the table with the Lord. Go now with that hope and share that with others this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen.